0: Just go to Indeed.com slash Blue Wire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's indeed.com slash Blue Wire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Fellas, listen up. All you ever ask for is an opportunity. You got it today. Where else would you rather be than right here? Right now.
1: The Rock Pile Report. With Buffalo Bills season ticket holder through gear. Be
2: aggressive. You have literally nothing to lose. You're a borderline football team. If I don't keep laughing about this stuff, my teeth are gonna turn around and devour my brain. The
0: Bills make me wanna pigeon yeah. oh. right next to the referee on that sideline. 53 yards! Field goal, Ouska's kick
2: on the way. It is no good. Ooh, welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Rock Pal Report podcast. I'm your host, Bill, season ticket holder, True Gear. That's my producer, Chris Kruger. And that was James Lofton and Andrew Catalan from CBS Sports with the call.
1: <sighs> that was rough.
2: <laughs> that was rough. I feel like a baby seal from one of those PETA videos, Chris. I.
1: You I, just got mashed with a bat. This
2: is just, Woo, folks. We have a show for you tonight, and uh, you know we've heard complaints recently that we're too negative. Guys, we're not here to be negative. We're here to have a good time. In fact, part of our show tonight, we've got a full slate because we have our preview with Travis Wingfield of Lockdown Dolphins of Sunday's action. We have our recap of the the game, the game against the Browns. We have our preview of the playoff picture as it currently sits because we have a, a full show for you tonight. It's going to be a great time. But right now, Chris, I'd like to toast. To the very first Buffalo snowstorm of the year. A tradition unlike any other.
1: Yeah, and came in at the right time, mid-November.
2: Mid-November, dropped 10 inches of snow overnight. Obviously, people are already driving like they've never seen snow before, which is hysterical to me. But that makes this a week for firsts, Chris, because I I want to talk about something here. Chick-fil-A.
1: Finally had it.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So, folks, friend of the show, Reed Ferguson... Has been astounded that despite my love of fried chicken and my status as a former 348 pounder, I've never had Chick-fil-A. When the location here opened last year, he was shocked when he found out that I, Chris, I was still refusing to eat there.
1: I don't know why. That's uh, weird. It's
2: not weird. Okay, look at, look at it from my perspective. I used to be almost 350 pounds. Now, for the fr- just last week, for the first time in years, I saw the number 207 on the scale. I think I was a junior, maybe even a sophomore in high school the last time I saw that. All right, which titty was that? You don't get there without significantly altering the way you eat. I have, by all accounts, despite my significant alcohol intake, I, I eat a fairly clean diet. My diet's consistent. It's bland.
1: Yeah, you're because usually, I'm you're usually subs- walking in here eating a green pepper
2: because I'm pretty much a, subsist- a subsistence eater. I don't care. I don't get cravings for things other than booze. I don't. There aren't food things that I ever want because the only time I generally eat things is when okay, I'm starting to feel a certain type of way. I should probably I need some more fuel in the tank just to kind of get me through. That's how I look at food. Yeah, you know, outside of grilled meats and you know barbecue and things of that nature. Because those are specific things that I enjoy. But even then, yeah, you know, I, I eat a fairly clean diet. And part of that involves no fast food whatsoever. Chain restaurants? Absolutely not. I don't know what kind of processed nonsense you're throwing in there. So places like Chick-fil-A don't appeal to me. And yet, Chris, you, me, Reed, our girlfriends, we all went out. I caved. I said, okay, fine, I'll give it a whirl. Chris, you saw the look on my face when I bit into that spicy chicken sandwich.
1: Well, I was surprised. I would just assumed you're just going to, okay, I've never been here. I'll get the Ridge, and that'll be it. No, you got grilled nuggets. You got normal nuggets. <laughs> you got the spicy. You got the, like, calm down. Let's just have one.
2: No, because if I'm going into enemy territory, you go bigger. you go home. Okay, there's no in-between here. I ordered one of everything they had on the damn menu. That's spicy chicken sandwich. If you could take Jesus... Put two pickles on it and put it between a bun. I'm pretty sure that's what it would taste like.
1: Praise Allah.
2: Chris, you see, I'm known for putting condiments, just slathering condiments on everything I eat. Correct. My wife has watched me walk the house, dipping a block of cheddar cheese into just ketchup and eating it.
1: That's a little weird.
2: Condiments. I live, I can't live without them. And yet that chicken sandwich might be the first thing that I've put, that I've eaten with no condiments on it since I was a child. Chris I couldn't stop. I'm I, I'm am addicted. It's incredible. Saturday Larissa and her her family's in town and they stop and they go to Chick-fil-A. And her mother, you know her mother says, "Hey, does Drew want anything?" And she says, "Oh yeah, get him a chicken sandwich." So here I am coming home from the gym in a towel, getting out of the shower, and they come through the door and they've got Chick-fil-A. Chris, I stood there in our kitchen in a towel. And I started eating that spicy chicken sandwich before I could even get it all the way out of the bag. I pretty much looked homeless.
1: You probably ate the bag, too. I
2: pretty much looked homeless. I have a problem now. Because I, I didn't think that a fast food restaurant was capable of putting out a product like this, Chris. And now, it's just it has me questioning everything. Because here's the thing. We also, I just went to Cheesecake Factory for the very first time in my entire life yesterday. And it was amazing. I shouldn't say amazing, but the food was good. I mean, I... Chris, I'm now questioning what the hell else am I missing out on in the world? By not eating fast food, what else am I not getting? What am I missing here?
1: Well, if you're, I mean, if you go head to Popeye's and get the chicken sandwich to compare, you're just going to end up turning into Kramer from Seinfeld (laughs) during the Kenny Rogers episode. You're just going to be sitting in Jerry's bed, just rocking back and forth, just eating chicken from Popeye's and Chick-fil-A. Wiping grease on the sheets. Yes. My wife's going
2: to throw me out of the house. We're going to get divorced over chicken. <laughs> Seriously, I want, now, now my interest is peaked and I guess at the risk of opening myself up to just ballooning back up to 300 pounds like I was comedian Bobby Kelly. I want to, for those of you out there who are listening to this podcast, I want to know what else exists out there in the realm of fast food that my just refusal to entertain any of it has me missing in life.
1: Yeah, so tweet at us at Rockpile Report on Twitter. <laughs> And let, let Drew know what he's been missing.
2: <laughs> Chris, like a homeless person, I ate that chicken sandwich. I wanted to stop there on my way over tonight, even though I didn't have time. I was going to engine. I thought about leaving work early just to go get a chicken sandwich. That's how s- Chris, I, I, I've got an itch,
1: Chris. Yeah, Their sandwiches are laced with crack. <laughs>
2: uh, I also have an itch from this Sunday's past football game, but I think that might be more of a case of hives. <laughs> <laughs> That's an allergic reaction to just, just bad football. Oh no, Chris, you can't even call it bad. It it is what it is when the Bills and Browns play each other. And then we're, we're going to open up this discussion with our week 10 recap. Bill, Browns 19, Buffalo Bills 16. As always, we're going to hit you with our stats of the game. You look at the quarterback play. Josh Allen, 22 of 41 for around 50%, 266 yards, one sack. A snow picks and a 73.8 rating as a passer. Baker Mayfield, 26 of 38, 238 yards, two touchdowns, two sacks, a 102.7 rating. The Bills' offensive line, one tackle for a loss allowed, one sack, and four quarterback hits allowed. The Browns' running backs, 24 rushes, nine catches, 195 total yards, 6.1 yards per touch. The Bills running backs, 17 total touches, 66 total yards, 3.8 per touch. Odell Beckham Jr., 12 targets, 5 catches, 57 yards. Tight end Lee Smith, 26% of the snaps, 2 penalties on first down for 15 yards. He's now tied for 4th in the NFL with 9 penalties on the season. The next closest tight end to him on that list, Chris is rookie tight end Noah Fant from Denver. Bills' third quarter scoring, zero points on Sunday. They now sit 30th in the NFL at two points per third quarter per game. Chris, what did I tell you? And even that didn't really do it justice. What did I tell you? It was going to be be 15 to 11. We were almost there. You almost hit it on the nuts. I mean, guys, Bills versus Browns truly is a clusterfuck unlike any other. A lot of you people scoffed last week when I pointed out the long and absurd history of terrible football that these teams have gotten together to play. Sunday didn't really disappoint. Chris, at one point, the Browns had more goal, had, had almost as many goal-line plays with 12 plays from the goal-line as the Bills had offensive plays altogether. They had 12, we had
1: 17. And how many times did they convert? Once? Twice?
2: They kicked a field goal. Chris, a safety to tie the game at nine points per team since neither team could kick well. A taunting call on a celebrating wide receiver. Chris, you see that all the time. How often, outside of the Bills playing the Browns, would that team then go on to miss what should be a routine extra point after?
0: (laughs) Extra point
2: kick. That game Um, is, is brutal. And then in keeping with that trend of ridiculously makeable field goals, one team missed one inside the 40. Badly. <laughs> Chris, those 12, those 12 goal line plays that the Browns ran, I mean, cr- first of all, credit to our goal line defense. They ran the, for as much as Nick Chubb did on the ground. I think he had 116 yards total rushing. Whenever they tried to go to him in the red zone, we did a great job of sniffing those plays out because you can see our safeties get involved. They knew they didn't really have to cover deep over the top, so they could get into the mix and get down into the box and really shut things down, and you could see the impact it had. But this is, again, how hilariously bad these two teams are when they get together. Those 12 goal line plays that only resulted in three points, Chris, broke a record that has stood for 26 years, according to the Elias uh, Sports, with the Sports Bureau? Yes. Elias Sports Bureau says that that, no team has run that many plays from the goal line without scoring a touchdown in 26 years. <laughs> Chris, it, it, there's at least, and I think the hallmark of a bad game is how many plays I have to watch or at least listen to from the bathroom.
1: Oh, yeah, that's right. You were spent a lot of part of the game in the, in the bathroom because uh, I thought you were bad luck. If
2: you've ever gotten to a point where you're questioning whether or not the game hinges on you standing in the dark in the bathroom of your house listening to the game, you know things have gone terribly awry. And that's exactly what kind of game they gave us on Sunday. I mean, all the way around, it was just rough. I mean, there were some really positive takeaways. Chris, I want to go back to that for a second. You know, people maligned the defense this week. Somehow, some way, I saw people taking to Twitter saying, "Oh, if the defense just had one more stop." Your defense did what most good defenses in a in a drastically offensive NFL NFL as a league,
1: everything is skewed towards offense. Yeah, if you could hold a team to twenty points or less. You know, that's your, he, all you're asking is your offense to get in three times.
2: You're not asking for a ton.
1: No. I, I, and I, I understand Levi
2: Wallace had his struggles. You know, He was picked on a lot. He allowed a lot of completions in this game, including mm-hmm. one for a touchdown. Two, two for one. a
1: touchdown. Were they both his? Both okay. were on him.
2: He's a second-year player. And there's a reason that he was an undrafted free agent. He does have limitations. I think he can play well inside of the scheme that Sean McDermott runs. But one of the problems, Chris, is that in a game like this— you have no choice. I think he plays best when he's asked to play zone defense off the ball. Where you see him struggle is like Sunday when you're kind of because of the talents that the Browns have at wide receiver, you're forced to kind of play zone and man mixed together. You know, you saw more often than not Tre'Davious White was shadowing Odell Beckham wherever he was on the field. You know, that's not that's not a mistake. You're playing man defense with a purpose. That seems to be a whole in Levi Wallace's game. And it's just what the play call was. But yes, he had his struggles. There was also some other plays, Chris, that I thought were questionable, like just from a schematic standpoint. You know, at one point, there's a completion to Odell Beckham Jr. for a first down, and it's made to the side of the field where you have Lorenzo Alexander dropping into coverage. Why?
1: He's old. He don't have speed.
2: It's, it's just not a good idea. But ultimately, that unit did enough. You know, I've seen again, I've seen on Twitter where people are genuinely criticizing the defense and blaming them for the fact that we lost this game. And I, I just don't think that argument holds a lot of water. You held a team in the NFL to under 20 points.
1: Yeah, that's what you want your defense to do.
2: You you want your defense holding teams to under 20 points. I mean, Chris, if I go and I look at the scoreboard from this weekend in the NFL, I'm I'm looking at one, two, three, four, five. One, two, three. Hours, three, four, five. So there was maybe six games, seven games altogether, where a defense was able to, out of however many games were played, where one team was held under 20 points. It's a thing that either it speaks to the fact that both offenses are inept, which we did see, but also that your defenses are out there doing their job.
1: Yeah, because as far as the passing game is concerned, after five yards, it becomes the NBA
2: I mean, do you think that anybody right now, the Miami Dolphins, who we're going to be previewing later, they beat the Indianapolis Colts last week, 16-12. to 12. Is anybody from the Colts fan base screaming about the terrible play by their defense because they held the Dolphins to 16 points? Probably not. So with that in mind, I don't understand where all of this ire is coming from. I mean, some of the biggest plays we had, the goal line stands, the uh, Tremaine Edmonds, the sack for
1: a safety. Yep.
2: Chris... Your defense put points on the board. Even well, how can you blame them for this loss?
1: Even you can't. Even on offense, playing defense, when Josh Allen fumbled running towards the end zone, and John Feliciano with his with his cat like yeah. agility <laughs> picks the ball up and barrel rolls towards the end zone. Well, and that's a you know that, that's a good jumping off point for the other part of this conversation is
2: that I've also seen in this this desire by fans who Chris I'm, I, like I said we've been painted now. By a lot of listeners and people who... They were you know, negative. We are the negative podcast. It's not about being negative. It's just about being observant fans. We've been painted as just trying to disparage the team. No, i just like to point out the things that I think are worth talking about. And in some cases, the last few weeks, they've been negative. This week, it's that our defense played a lot better than I think a lot of people are giving them credit for. And to that point, so did our offensive line. Chris, I read to you the statistics just a few minutes ago, right? Yes. Those don't sound like loser stats. No. When your offensive line is playing particularly well, you're not letting you're not letting people into the backfield. Okay? You're not giving up a ton of pressures on the – well, you're giving up pressures on the quarterback because you're going up against – I mean, remember the Miles Garrett sack that, that should have been where Dawkins just put the, the rusher in his lap? Your pass defense – your protection wasn't great, but it was adequate. You know, it was good enough. I mean, you're talking about a defensive system that's built on rushing the passer, and they have a lot of guys who can get after it. So with that said, I think our offensive line did a pretty good job. And John Feliciano, who knew that a man over 300 pounds can do a cartwheel? I didn't. Chris, you watched me try to do a cartwheel once. It was one of the ugliest things I've ever seen. Somehow, this man does a cartwheel on top of another human being while picking up a ball. I mean, that's just impressive.
1: Yeah, the agility Feliciano <laughs> had was amazing. Kept the drive alive. We eventually scored, which, you know, didn't matter. No, but it does matter, Chris. Because oh, yeah, because we missed a 53-yard <laughs> field goal. I forgot about that.
2: Uh, it matters because there are things that you can point to about Sunday's game and say they went well. There are also some things that you got to talk about because, Chris, it's the story of the game. And if you're looking at it through my eyes – the story of the game continues to be Brian Dable in this offense that isn't. Okay, I've got to admit, you'd think that sitting here talking to you right now, thinking about how ahead of the curve I was in terms of being pissed off about the state of this Buffalo Bills offense, you think I might feel a little bit better, thinking like, "Hey, I was right, and there is in fact a growing crisis at hand, and maybe all of my, you know, playing chicken little was actually." Actually meaningful, despite the fact that we were winning games when I started sounding the alarm. But you're wrong. There's nothing fun about this. It kind of sucks. <laughs> it really does. Last year, we were told well in advance that our offense was going to be bad, Chris. You knew when you looked at what they were putting on paper.
1: Yeah, this was goes, not going to be a dynamic offense. Yeah, it goes to my cookie analogy yeah. from last season.
2: I mean, it was built towards getting our quarterback of the future acclimated towards pro football... And waiting for a point where we could revamp our skill positions. And we were just gonna to have to tread water until the following offseason when we'd have all the money and we'd have draft capital and we'd have all these things that we could use to bolster it. This year, despite significant assets and capital tied into the offense, what we're seeing, it's just, I mean, despite everything the analytics community will tell you, it's just not impacting the scoreboard. And ultimately, that's what matters. That's the one metric that decides football games. In 2018, we failed to score 21 points in 11 of our 16 games. That was 68%. In 2019, we've done that five times in nine games, which is 56%. And if you count the Miami game, which the the final score includes a returned onside kick, that makes six out of nine. That's 66%, Chris. That's not a whole lot different from last season, is it? No. Nope. Okay. If you do the math, we are currently on pace to score 309 points this season compared to last season's 269, which is despite the draft picks, despite the, the overhaul of the offensive line, the fact that you added two more, two more wide receivers, you know, veteran wide receivers, who understand the nuances of route running and seem to be more reliable in terms of catching than anything we had last year. You only have a net gain of thirteen percent of extra scoring. That's just not ideal. It's not working. Now it's not tangible improvement. <laughs> it, and Chris, I, I guess there's just there's just so much here to unpack as to why, and it's it's something of a problem. I mean, it really is. I, I want to take this to Brian Dable. This is what Brian Dable had to say. I mean, we want to talk about personnel util- utilization. We want to talk about how this offense is constructed. But there's things here that I'm seeing that are concerning. This is just an example of this. This is, you what, know what? Brian, this is what Brian Dable had to say about the his odd usage of Singletary.
0: You know, I think he had eight carries and seven targets. Um, you know, obviously we... You know, running ball was, was tough sledding in there. Um, you know, we gained a few yards in the first half. Uh, they did a good job in the second half. Just felt, you know, if they pack it in, there's weaknesses in other areas in terms of spreading it out and trying to get it on the perimeter to try to open up more running lanes, um, and that, that's what it was.
1: Brian Daybolt from his Monday press conference over at buffalobills.com. Tough sledding running. gave gave Singletary eight goddamn carries.
2: Okay, but, but Chris, that sort of answers that question, right? Sure. Okay. But then there's this when he was asked just a minute or two later in his press conference yesterday about his decision to call a route combination like the one that they did on the final third down play right before the missed field goal to tie the game.
0: we got a one-on-one matchup. Let's, you know, it was not the same play, but similar to the, you know, third down and whatever it was against the jets with smoke on the left-hand side where he caught it and, you know, ran into the end zone. Um, got to have confidence in your guys. Uh, you hit some and you don't.
1: Brian Dable from his Monday Press dot BuffaloBills.com.
2: Okay. That's where, I, Chris, this is where I, I hear that and I look at his, something he said three minutes before that and I stop buying his explanation. I don't. Because if you actually believe the philosophy quoted, trusting your talented players to go make plays when things are difficult. I mean, Chris, that's what he said. Hey, you know, you trust your guys to go out there and make plays, right? Yeah. He said it, he said those words. Then why are you shying away from giving the ball to your to your to not just your running back group as a whole, but arguably the most talented offensive player, at least according to Pro Football Focus, your most effective player of the day? You shied away from giving in the ball simply because the defense was filling the box to make it harder to execute. Isn't that the opposite of the sentiment that he just, you know, he said, hey, sometimes you're going to trust guys to make plays. Why aren't you trusting your most effective guy to make plays for you?
1: Exactly. Not to mention Cleveland, 30th rush defense in the league. I
2: mean, you actively prevented, you actively prevented the guy who played a premier role for you just a week ago and led you to a win (laughs) in a game where your offensive line actually isn't playing that bad. You took the ball out of his hands. Yet you're talking about trusting your playmakers. I don't understand this. It doesn't make any sense to me. That's not rational thinking. Then, Chris, there's our continued failure to score in the third quarter. That should scare the shit out of everybody. Because philosophically, Chris, going into the locker room at halftime after an unsuccessful first half, or even if you're having a successful first half, that should be, according to conventional football wisdom, a time when you as a team can go into the locker room, you can talk about what the defense did in the first half that caused your offense to stall, And then you can come out with a scripted drive to try to take advantage of some of those things that they put on tape in the first half. Right? That makes sense.
1: Yeah. I mean, they did get the ball to start the second half on Sunday. Absolutely. And so with that,
2: when you look at the fact that we struggle not just in this game, but in almost every game this season to come out of halftime and put together even a single scripted scoring drive. It makes you question, it has to make you question the direction of things, right?
1: Yes, it does.
2: Okay. <laughs> I mean, there's there's so many, <laughs> it just doesn't make sense. And there's so many facets of this that have to be considered. The newness of all but two primary players on the offensive side of the ball. I mean, we mentioned this in a previous podcast, but literally, Josh Allen and Deion Dawkins are the only two players from 2018 still on the roster who play more than 30% 30 of the snaps this season. So you're dealing with a lot of new moving parts. But it's week nine. It's week nine, and you need to start finding a way, right?
1: You should have already had that kind of figure out by now.
2: You can also point to the growth of Josh Allen as a passer. He still makes some questionable decisions. His vision sometimes fails him. You know, one of the things that we pointed out that, you know, again, I got yelled at by the analytics community because I posted a picture on Twitter. And it's Cole Beasley wide open at the, third, at, at, the third, at the first down marker. Third and four
1: to set up the field goal.
2: To set up the field goal. He's wide open at the marker, and instead Josh Allen never even looked his way. Because the coverage dictated to Josh Allen where he was going to go with the ball. And it seemed like after the snap, he already had his mind made up. I'm going to take the one-on-one matchup on the outside and man coverage, rather than trust somebody else to get open and beat their coverage and make a play. Much in the same way Brian Dable just got done telling us to trust you, you got to trust your guys to make plays. Sometimes you got to trust your guys who look like they might be covered pre snap to get out and make a play. I mean, yeah. Chris, he was wide open in that play.
1: Yeah, even if you hit Cole, I mean, I've, I saw the photo you tweeted out. Even if you hit Cole Beasley there, who. Uh, I guess just did, I don't know what those routes are called, where you just went to the sticks, stopped, turn around. There was nobody there. Well, because so, they ran a max blitz. So even if you hit Cole Beasley and him standing still, he's still going to get some yak. Absolutely. And I think at that point you still had a timeout to, to so burn. That puts
2: you, content- yeah. put you almost in position to maybe win it, a yeah. touchdown to win the game.
1: Instead of a 53-yard f- field goal, you're maybe kicking a 35, 30-yard 30 field goal. <sighs>
2: It's, it's just one of these things. So you, you have the confusing play calling, the reliance on guys who aren't, <laughs> who may seem like your premier playmakers, but aren't guys who statistically you'd say, okay, this is going to work. And just the lack of answers to sustained growth from one week to the next. I mean, last week you thought they turned a corner, right? You thought that they took a look at the game plan and said, okay, we just found out that if you give Singletary the ball 20 times... He can he can create. Against a more suspect rush defense, you'd assume that would be the plan. And then, you know, you assume conventional wisdom would win out, and that your offensive coordinator would craft a game plan that played to that. And then you see what you saw on Sunday. And so it it does draw into question, (laughs) it's like the chicken and egg argument. Who is actually the problem? What is the problem? And I'm glad that you and I are sitting here questioning this, Chris, because we're not alone.
1: We're not alone. No, oh, I really question. I really question this because I see stuff on Twitter of, of GIFs of Dable on the sideline yelling at Josh Allen. I see Josh Allen making bad plays. I, I see you know third third and nine and you're running a, a screen pass with no blockers over there. It's like I don't know. I don't know the X's and O's of this. I can't tell if this is a OC problem or if this is a quarterback problem.
2: Well, you're not alone, Chris. One of the scariest things to me is the analyst-on-analyst crime that's been happening on social media ever since the Browns game. These are the people that I pretty much unilaterally refer to as the quote-unquote smart people. The guys who spend their free time and even their professional time dissecting the minutiae of football games, the statistics, the advanced analytics, breaking down film. Just to try to provide additional insight and in a lot of cases an explanation for what it is we're seeing on the field besides just The simple X's and O's, Chris. Yet they can't seem to agree what the hell it is that we're seeing and why. And in some cases, it's becoming acrimonious.
0: Human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria.
2: (laughs) Chris, it's bad. You've got radio analysts fighting with beat reporters. You've got bloggers fighting with vloggers, fighting with just some idiot on the couch with a beer. This is bad. They're fu- these are the people who usually, you know, a guy like me takes to Twitter to rant about Josh Allen, who, who gets on a podium after drinking 18 beers and holds a ridiculous just yell into the ether type press conference and gets told that I'm all of these things, all of the ways that I'm wrong about everything that I think. These are the people who are composed or concise. Their opinions are driven by data. And yet now they're fighting with each other. I mean, and some of it, I understand where it comes from. If you're an analyst of any sort, you have some sort of bias, even if you don't realize it. Everybody does. You know, Chris, you have things that you think are correct about sports, and it shapes the way you see things.
1: Yeah, and, okay. you, and you don't want to let it go because you want to be right. Kinda, exactly. Kind of with you, you with Josh Allen, probably me with Lamar Jackson. I don't even
2: know if it's with me and Josh Allen anymore because I just want him to be good. I just can't figure out why it's not working. And so from that, I then move from blaming Josh Allen to blaming Josh to Brian Dable to blaming the talent of the team. And no matter where I turn, I'm being I, I was I've spent weeks being told by this specific group of people that I'm wrong. Yet now they can't seem to figure it out amongst themselves. I mean, you've got guys like Greg Thompson from Cover One arguing with yards per pass on Twitter over which set of analytics and statistics "quote unquote" tells the story of the Bills' offense. You've got, like I said. Beat reporters, guys who do this for a living, throwing all kinds of wild opinions out there almost pointedly at other people in the media as if, well, you think this, but this is what I think and I'm more right than you are. I mean, Film review junkies who can't seem to agree as to whether it's play calling, lack of execution of the plays, or or just a gross misorganization between the two that's to blame for these failed drives and our lack of progress. Now, To someone who doesn't put that kind of effort in any of those things, Chris, or try to make it part of my livelihood, (laughs) that's a terrifying prospect. These are the guys who make their bones studying puzzles like this, picking apart these things and trying to come up with a constructive answer as to why we're seeing what we're seeing, and they can't agree on what specifics are broken or need to be addressed other than i'm wrong every time i have a booze fueled blow up over it what what do you make of that as a casual fan what do you make of that just i don't it's, no one has an answer
1: it's harder for me i can't decide who if is josh allen not is is he not progressing as a qb is the offensive coordinator not calling the right place to put josh allen in a position to win i mean is he I, not
2: utilizing the proper personnel together in concert with each other I mean, the, I mean, to they, your point, calling a screen pass where you don't have anybody out there to block for him. Is that a that's just a schematic breakdown. That has nothing to do with the execution of the players.
1: Well, I mean, you look at you look at Singletary having eight carries and Cleveland's got the thirtieth run defense, you would think that that's a that's a OC issue. Why aren't you running the ball on one of the worst rush defenses in the league?
2: Well, and I think one of the bigger problems that I have, and that I've I've been able to draw, not that I'm trying to be one of the smart people. A lot has been said on this topic in the last two days, and it's growing in my mind as an alarming proposition. The Bills aren't scoring points, and no one can tell me. I've asked the question to every one of these people. Eric Turner and uh, Ryan Liesel and those guys from over at uh, Rock Sports Network, and Greg and Aaron and all of these people, all these people. I tweeted at Yards Per Pass, but he's a busy guy, probably didn't see it, or he probably just figured I was hammered and didn't give it any credence. But I was seriously asking does anybody know nine weeks into the year what this team is trying to be on offense? I mean, when Rex Ryan got here, he made no bones about the fact that he wanted to be a ground-and-pound football team. He wanted to be run-oriented and that he was gonna zig while the towards running while the rest of the league zag towards spread option passing. He, he, he made the trade for LaShawn McCoy. He, he pushed that trade because he knew he needed a dynamic running back. He brought in Greg Roman, the architect of the running attack that's currently leading the NFL with the Baltimore Ravens. Yep. Okay? He brought in all of the smart minds that he could find and all of the talent he could find that were hopefully going to lend itself. He brought in a richie incognito. they guys who he knows are maulers in the run game. And that was going to be the identity of the team. What is Brian Dable? I mean, the Bills are currently 21st in the NFL in passing attempts. And 11th in rushing attempts, which would make you think that running the ball is what our offense is philosophically built around. But then, against the 30th-ranked rush defense of the Browns, we take the ball out of that group's hands entirely, and instead put it in the air for we put it in the air 41 times.
1: I don't get that at all for no
2: other reason than I mean the explanation he gave in his presser was he didn't like the fact that they had too many guys in the box. But that doesn't strike me as the behavior of a run-oriented team. I mean, when McCoy was here, LaShawn McCoy was leading the NFL for multiple seasons running against stacked boxes. That offense had an identity. It was just, look, yeah, they're going to stack the box. So we just have to go out there and out-execute them. And that's what's going to pace our performance. I mean, <laughs> that's it. You can't outthink defenses on a week-to-week basis, Chris. It's just not going to work in the NFL. Then Sean McDermott followed it up with something in his in his press in his press conference on Monday that I found confusing. He was asked about Lee Smith's penalties and you know how he felt, you know, what he felt, you know, what his thoughts were on it. And his response was that he needs to, he needs to dial it in. He needs to become more focused as a veteran player on this team. And he made a comment that was interesting because he said Lee's penalties were were very disruptive to offensive flow. Because our offense is predicated on long drives that require solid execution because we don't really have a whole lot of explosive plays. Now, Chris, to hear him say something like that, is that supposed to be the identity of this offense?
1: Uh, I can recall back early in the season when we were getting love on national media, uh, Colin Cowherd and his herd hierarchy broke down. Of how we were scoring touchdowns on long drives, like 70 plus yard drives.
2: Okay. But the reason I question even something like that, here's the issue. When you consider that style of play, you know as a football fan that it would almost, rec- it would absolutely require you if you're going to take a long scoring drive instead of trying to say, okay, we're going to try for four plays and then we're going to take a home run shot. And if it doesn't work, or not even a home run shot, but we're going to get chunk-yarded somewhere. We're going, to, we're going to dial up some passing concepts that we know can get us 20 or 30 yards on a play. If we're not doing that, and everything requires execution, and we're going to chew clock, and we're going to grind our way down the football field, then you have to have a solid game plan for attacking opponents' weaknesses play after play after play. And instead, I don't see that from this team. I mean, we talked with Spencer last week in our Browns preview And he said that the linebacking core was probably one of the weaknesses of the team if you wanted to look at that defense, because their defensive line was solid. And he underscored the fact that that was going to be a place where teams have picked on the Browns all season. If that's the case, Chris, and your linebackers are where you're doing, wouldn't you expect Cole Beasley to see more passes if that's truly the weakness? If their outside corners are very good, their safety play is pretty good, but their linebackers are weak? You'd expect to see more running backs into the secondary. You'd expect to see more Cole Beasley and more tight ends over the middle. And instead, when I look at their usage pattern, you, Dawson Knox got six targets. Cole Beasley got six targets.
1: Yeah. Wouldn't you want to run play action to drop your the linebackers closer to the line and then throw over them?
2: But in order to establish play action, you have to actually run the football.
1: Oh, that's right. We didn't do that. I forgot.
2: And so that's my point. You can't tell me that that's what you want to be if you're actively doing things on the offensive side of the ball that fly in the face of that. I mean, that's, that's it. Chris, I'm more concerned by the... I'm more and more concerned. Every week, this staff talks about fixing the offense, but it isn't materializing on the field. And the more I hear their answers in these press conferences, even though we know they're being vanilla and they're not really giving true reactions and McDermott's notorious for giving us nothing.
1: Yeah. That's why you do your own press conferences over on our YouTube page. But
2: the, the more worried I get, the more of the stuff I pay attention to. I mean, fuck's sake. If you watch Brian Dable from yesterday's press conference, just watch it. You could mute it and not listen to a single word that's said and just look at his face. When you watch him speaking, obviously, you know, the words that you hear, no coach is going to lay their plan out for you. They're going to give you vanilla answers. But there are at some points where he gets to ask some pretty legitimate questions. And I count no fewer than five or six different times that he makes a face. His eyes get big, not exasperated, but almost as if he's staring off into the distance and actively thinking about the question and doesn't truly have a good answer for it. I know that face. It's the same face I've made dozens and dozens of times the morning after just a wild, drunken night out. And I'm listening to people articulate all of the reasons that they're upset with me. And I just don't have a good answer for what happened. Drew, why is there a pound of turkey and salsa on the blender? Drew, why are your underwear in the refrigerator? These are things that I've hit. What do you say to that? Your eyes get big. You stare off into the distance. And you just go, wow. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to give you an answer, but I don't have a good one because I don't know. That was the face I saw on Brian Dable. And that scares me, Chris. I'm not even mad. I mean, I started this season coming from a place of frustration and borderline rage about our offense. And I was looking for someone to blame for all these problems. But, Chris, no one can find a thing to blame, which is even more terrifying. The fact that the quote-unquote smart people can't tell me where the problem lies. Now it's moving on to something like mild panic. (laughs) You guys <laughs> have ultimately you reach a place. I'm not going to worry about the future of the Bills' offense because that's like wiping before you poop. It just doesn't make sense. But something at at its core is wrong here. And they, for all the talk about them figuring it out, McDermott. I said it a few weeks ago. He's he's earned the right to, to at least take a crack at fixing it. But how many weeks can you talk about fixing it when there's no tangible progress, or when you make progress only to backslide a week later? It's scary, folks, and it's real. <laughs> it's real and it's here. But I think the brightest spot, Chris, because, I again, I hate ending these things on a negative note because I don't like it that people who listen to it think that we are the quote-unquote negative fans. Chris, Tredavius White, despite everything that I could bitch and complain about in this podcast, there is, he, he has become the shining spot on a lot of things for me, and especially on Sunday. When does he need a new contract? The uh, Two years. All right. <laughs> oh, and he is, dude, he's going to earn every dollar of it. I mean, look at him. You shut down Odell Beckham Jr., who is arguably one of the NFL's best wide receivers.
1: Was it five catches on 12 targets?
2: Five catches on 12 targets for 55 yards and no touchdowns. He made some fantastic plays on what I'm going to call should have been caught balls. I mean, Chris, that keeps you in the game. He had that one that was for a touchdown. Remember when he punches it out of his hands in the back of the end zone? Yep. Then he's got the one where it's a, it could be a first down, and instead he swats it away from his hands as they're both trying to make a diving play on the ball. He did a great job not falling for any... I mean, the thing that makes Odell Beckham dangerous is that he gets so many yards after the catch, Chris, and a lot of that's predicated on how shifty he is. Once he gets the ball in his hands and can find some open space, you know, he'll juke-step you just to open your hips up as a cornerback, and then he cuts to where... It's almost like basketball. You know, Stevie Johnson was like this. He uses almost once he gets the ball in his hands, he becomes like a point guard in basketball in the sense that he'll set you up with a quick jab step and then just go and he'll break your ankles like a point guard playing basketball. So with that said, you saw him try to do that to Tredavious White a number of times on Sunday, and he just couldn't do it. White stayed with him every step of the way, which is phenomenal work for a cornerback who's only been in the league for three years. He forced the Browns to either overthrow deep or keep their passing to the middle of the field on whichever side he was lined up on, more often than not. And he almost had that interception, Chris. Yeah. Oh, he almost had that interception. Who is it, 21? Is that Micah Hyde or Jordan Poyer? Poyer. An overzealous safety comes in and breaks up what might have been a turnover that... Ugh. Chris, he was playing like a man who was trying to win us this football game, which for a cornerback is hard to do.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's our defense. Our defense is the ones that wins us the games anyway.
2: Now, early on in this season, there was a lot of flack directed at Trey White. Everyone, pers- Chris, you remember. People talking trash about him, about even as far back as last year. Oh, he couldn't cover Kenny Galladay. And then early this year, it was, well, this wide receiver had a catch, and this wide receiver had a catch, and I think it was the Giants game. Somebody caught a ball in front of him, and we heard about that for almost a week. Look at him, Chris. Look at him. Look at him now. Where are you people now? Trey White just took out one of the premier wide receivers. Pretty much made him a non-factor in the football game. ESPN's already named him to their mid-season all-pro team, and Sunday he showed why. Regardless of what fans who are too close to his, too close to the team to kind of see the forest for the trees. You know, if you're looking at a game by game by game basis and you're not taking in the full body of the work, the way someone outside of the franchise might look in at them, I mean, Chris, if you weren't a fan of the Bills, you'd look at the way our team plays. You'd probably say Tredavious White's our best player,
1: right? Yeah, well, I mean, I'd look at the scores and be like, oh, wow, they hold a lot of teams under 20 points. They've got to have a good defense. And then from there, I'd probably focus in, why is their defense so good? Well, it's Trey White.
2: Oh, wait, they have a cornerback who can take out premier wide receivers and make them mostly irrelevant for a lot of the games. And I think a lot of that, too, Chris, is because, w- think about it. We play in a division with no real top-end wide receiver talent. So
1: no, from a,
2: So, for a game-to-game basis, it's hard for a lot of fan rays is until you see him on a guy like Odell Beckham. Hopefully more people will shut up and take notice because that guy balled out on Sunday. He's been bawling out all season. And that's why he's this week's Hero of the Week.
1: Do you know who the real heroes are? The guys who wake up every morning and go into their normal jobs and get a distress call from the commissioner and take off their glasses and change into capes and fly around fighting crime. Yeah, he's been the
2: cornerstone of our defense all year. I, I love the guy. I'm 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 <laughs> Chris, I'm dreading the day we have to pay him because that's going to be money. Money, and he's earning every penny of it, man. He's earning every cent of it. Hopefully he can keep it up because we've got some stuff coming down the pipeline. And then for this week's zeros of the week, offensive coordinator Brian Dable, kicker Stephen Hauschka, tight end Lee Smith, and tight end Dawson Knox.
0: You folks fell on your face. You get an F minus in my book.
1: That just reminded me, I'm going to have to run to the fridge and get a Seagrams because Knox Knox is a zero. So I owe you a Seagrams. And if, and if I could throw in a, a fifth, I would say Levi Wallace because he gave up two touchdowns. I got to go get a Seagrams. You get your Seagrams.
2: Folks, if I had to break this down for you, one of these people is at the top of the leaderboard for penalties in the NFL and didn't contribute enough offensively to make up for that. One of these players is a rookie who is already showing some issues with hands that just continue to buy the drive killers, these drops that he's having. And he's now ranked 10th in the NFL for drops. One of them missed his fourth field goal of the year inside of 50 yards, despite holding the largest cap hit in the NFL for a kicker. The other is the architect of something that simply isn't consistent enough to be relied on by anybody. And whose personnel decisions, like the decision to sit, to, to play Isaiah McKenzie and make him active, and then for some reason to take Duke Williams out of the lineup.
1: Was he was he just a healthy scratch? Healthy scratch. Weird.
2: Because he's one of your better run-blocking run, bla- run blocking wide receivers. It's also you committed by omitting him from the roster to not running the ball before the game even started. That alone. I couldn't decide, I couldn't decide which one of them deserved it more, so I backed the Greyhound up over all of them. So Chris, our final thoughts. When you walk away from this game, you look at the whole thing in retrospect. What do you take away from it?
1: The Seagrams. I got a... (laughs) <laughs> Wash it down with a sub from Wegman's. I like the fact that you have to chase that
2: thing with sandwich. Meanwhile, I chug them like a real man.
1: I don't. I don't have chugging capabilities. I just don't. I it's don't those, have that. It's those bird-like lips. That's right. It's like it's super
2: troopers. Mm-hmm. Most of my authority for this podcast is derived right here from these beautiful lips.
1: Yeah, but you don't have a mustache,
2: <laughs> Chris. If I had a mustache, I look. I look Mexican. It's bad. It's really, I just, I look terrible. My final thoughts on this is that when you lose a game like that, it's hard to feel good about a lot of things going forward, despite the fact that your team is still in the race. There are plenty of things that are not broken with this year's Buffalo Bills and that are still a cardinal component of the Bills sitting fifth in the AFC East. We are still in the wildcard picture. Our defense is still doing its part, holding our opponents out of the end zone and off the scoreboard on a pretty regular basis. Our star cornerback gets better every single game, and we're seeing flashes from Tremaine Edmonds, who got his first sack of the season this year, against the Browns in a move that tied the game. (laughs) He's becoming a much better football player right in front of our eyes, playing a premier position in a 4-3 defense. But the thing dragging fans down emotionally, and that has the potential to drag our record right down with it, continues to be the situation on the offensive side of the football. And as more time goes by that they don't get it right or can't seem to find a way to fundamentally fix it, you got to start to question the individual or individuals conducting the operation as a whole. Now, Chris, I have a quick story I want to tell because I I feel like it's relevant. Because as I'm sitting here thinking about how am I going to frame this and how am I going to sum this up? In terms of the struggles of Brian Dable, when I was in college, you're going back into the mid-2000s. I'm a junior in college. Uh, you're, now Chris, you know me. I'm pretty much a drinker. I mean, yeah. I'm a drinker. That's it. That's my vice. Well, when I was in college, as Theo, uh, comedian Theo Vaughn would put, I uh, would dabble in them dark arts.
0: <laughs>
2: there are some things I'd partake in now and again. So there's a Sunday afternoon where I'm particularly mellow, sitting in my dorm room, and my neighbor comes over and says, "Hey, man, you want to come play Texas Hold'em with me and my friends?" Now these weren't just random kids. These were the kids who you see reading books about poker philosophy. They spend their free time when they're alone and can't get together and play cards. They're playing Texas Hold'em on their computers.
1: So I would say that this is probably like 2004,
2: 2005. Yeah, right about
1: two thousand For context, 2003, I believe, is the year that that dude, Chris Moneymaker, won the World Series. And that's when poker shot up on TV.
2: Yeah, so everyone everyone is doing it. So these kids took it and ran with it. Meanwhile, you know... (laughs) In the state that I was in, Chris. You know, I asked him, what's the buy And It's 10 bucks. Yeah, sure, I'll come play with you and your friends. Halfway to the room, I realized I've never played Texas Hold'em before. I mean, I understand the concept of five-card poker, but I've, ne- <laughs> I've never played Texas Hold'em. But here I was on my way to go play in a 10-man card game. Chris, it was a disaster. You've got these 10 kids who understand, <laughs> understand the nuances of poker. And then you've got... Tommy Chong Jr. sitting here at the end of the table, who really has no idea what the hell is going on around him. And I mean, Chris, when I say I played terribly, I'm talking bad, Chris, to the point where, I mean, (laughs) I'm folding hands where I'm the big blind. And all I needed to do was check in order to see the flop. But I had no idea what a big blind was or what the chip in front of me meant, so I just fold my cards. And I, th- things where I would bet on flops that no one in their right mind would ever put money on.
1: I'm going all in on a seven-two off suit.
2: Well, that's a, the flop would come two-four-six all off suit, and I would raise. Uh, I'll raise two hundred, and people would just fold because like I don't know what this kid's doing. <laughs> well, Chris, sitting here playing with this group of people, I made it to the final two individuals sitting at the table just by outlasting everyone else. Because unlike, instead of playing and just focusing on their own hands, they were convinced that they could figure out how to play me. They could figure out what my strategy was, and they could bust me out really quickly because I was an easy target. And instead, they spent so much time focused on what I was doing, Chris trying to unravel my plan, that they bu- that they all busted out. When in reality, there was no plan. There was no plan whatsoever. I was swinging in the breeze. <laughs> the reason I tell you this is because I don't want to see that happen to the staff here for the Buffalo Bills in 2019. I don't want to see them end up like the other kids at this table who are trying to play poker with me and try to figure out a system of planning and execution. That is, Chris, it's unravelable. Unravelable. Jesus Christ, what a word. Chris, it's essentially not able to be figured out because there is no, no common sense put into its construction. Imagine all of the. What if we find out at the end of the day that Brian Dable genuinely doesn't know what he's doing in constructing a passing offense? His track record would speak to that. A lot of us wanted to believe when he was hired that, listen, he's had some bad. He's had a lot of bad passing offenses, but he's also been Brady Quinn twice in his career, which I mean that'll take anybody.
1: I don't wish that on anybody.
2: <laughs> and he just he's never had premier talent at the quarterback position. But then I think about the, Adam, the, the effect that Adam Gase is having on Sam Darnold this season. And you start to think about it, and you say, okay, well, wait a minute. What if the guy who's the architect of this thing genuinely doesn't have a fundamentally sound plan? In that case, all of this talk about fixing things going forward, Chris, might just be wasted. Because there actually isn't a, full, there isn't a sound plan in place to fix. That is my growing fear. And the only thing I can hope, Chris, the only thing I can hope is that going forward, I'm wrong, and that everyone else is right, regardless of the reason they think they're right, and that this ship truly can be righted, because if not, things are going to get ugly really fast for the Buffalo Bills on offense. And so with that, folks, we're going to roll out what is a new recurring segment for the show, given the point we are in the season and where our record stands and what just happened against the Cleveland Browns. The AFC Playoff Picture Week 11 Edition. The kickoff, Chris. With our latest loss, the Buffalo Bills get plunged right into know, the thick of what is a developing wildcard race. Despite having bites at the apple, the Bills have not distanced themselves from the pack enough to in my they, they, they,
0: Chris. They could have they're being they sucked
2: down into the quagmire that is the AFC at this point. And it's tough to forecast where Various teams are going to end up because there's so little parity in the conference right now There are five teams with three or fewer wins nine weeks into the season they Those five teams lead the league in a lot of negative metrics. I mean, they all have negative point differentials Two of the bottom four AFC teams have zero wins inside the conference What do you do with that? They're not competitive at all and they happen to be all over the schedules of the teams that we're jockeying for with position. So rather than our traditional AFC East roundup, I think it's worth taking this week and setting the table for what is going to be a new recurring segment on the show for the f- foreseeable future here. Taking a look at what is becoming a crowded AFC playoff race. We start with the divisional leaders. In the AFC North, you got the Baltimore Ravens at 7-2. and two. Now, their strength of schedule ranking at this point, as of week 11, according to tankathon.com, is the eighth easiest in football. And the meaningful tiebreakers they hold Buffalo is that they have a win over the Patriots. Now, the Ravens, the AFC North is the only division in the conference less competitive than the AFC East. And the Ravens are pretty much firmly in control of their own destiny at
1: this point, right? I think so. I think the, the Steelers are 5-4 and four or 4-5, four yeah. and five, something like that. So they're two like wins
2: back. They have a two-win margin for error, which is, aside from the Patriots, the largest aside, in the AFC.
1: Aside from injury, I think the Ravens pretty much have this thing locked up.
2: Well, that's the thing. And what makes you feel that way is their surprising win over New England. And now they beat the Bengals and set themselves up with a solid cushion over the Steelers, Browns, and Bengals by at least two games. That's going to come in handy. Because the bank, as of this week, the Ravens are going to go up against three teams. Houston, the Rams, and San Francisco that feature teams all in the top ten for scoring. And some dynamic defenses. If they were to slide during that stretch, it might not cost them the division, but it'll leave them vulnerable for postseason seeding. Making that fourth game in Week 14 against the Buffalo Bills a potential preview of a matchup we could see if the Bills make the postseason. And think about it. If the Ravens lose a game or two, now they're in the wild card mix. If they still win the division, but they don't get a bye, that's probably the team that the Bills are playing. If they've dropped that far.
1: Yeah, we'll be, yeah, I can see that.
2: I mean, when you look at their team this year, they're in the middle of the pack defensively, in part because what has traditionally been a strong pass rush for the Ravens has lost some of its spark. But they're number one in scoring in football. Greg Roman, remember 97 plays for a 62-play game, Greg Roman? Yeah. He's built this unconventional offense. Chris, this week, three different Heisman Trophy winners touched the football on the same play for the Baltimore Ravens. Lamar Jackson took a snap, pitched it to Mark Ingram, who then did a reverse to RG3 on the same play. This guy isn't afraid to throw the kitchen sink at opposing defenses. <laughs> and that's why, that's what's led to their success. That's the thing. I mean, But then when you look back at it, Chris, remember last year when we were hearing the same thing about how great they were under Lamar Jackson and how they went eight games in a row without being beaten. But then they played the Chargers who saw their defense or who saw their offense in the regular season and got beat by it and then met them in the playoffs and completely shut them down the second time around. I don't know if they're one trick ponies. We're gonna find out though. And it's gonna be it's gonna make that matchup with Buffalo much more interesting. In the AFC South, you've got the Houston Texans, six and three. Their strength of schedule ranking is the ninth easiest remaining in football. Meaningful tiebreakers, they have five AFC wins, Chris. Most, I think, out of almost anybody. And they have a win over Kansas City on the road. Look at what the Texans are, Chris. They have an electric quarterback, DeAndre Hopkins, who's one of the best wide receivers in football, and they can do some amazing things. But at six and three, I don't really know what their team is. They're good on the ground. They have the four- Chris. They have the fourth ranked rushing offense because teams are so scared of Deshaun Watson. That's that, that. That's the reality of the situation. They have no household name running backs, but they're running the ball down people's throats. They're also fourth in the NFL in total yards, but on the flip side of the ball, they're a shell of what they used to be. You know, With J.J. Watt out, with Jadavian Clowney gone, I do believe that, uh, what was it, uh, Whitney Merciless, didn't he get hurt early in the year? They're 26th in the NFL in passing touchdowns prevented. They're 23rd in interceptions and 31st in passing attempts against. Every team that plays them knows the way to beat them is to put the ball in the air. Their schedule is soft, and they're going to be in the hunt for as long as Watson is healthy and keeping them as the eighth-highest scoring team in football, Chris. Plus, they're in the AFC South. Well, the AFC South might be the biggest mess out of all the, all the conferences. The AFC West. You've got the Kansas City Chiefs at 6-4. and four. Their strength of schedule ranking is the they have the 18th easiest schedule, which I think puts them in the basement in terms of they have the hardest schedule over the remainder of the season as of today. When you look at win totals and the, the games that the teams that they're going to play have won, in my opinion, they are still okay the strongest of the six win teams on the board. I mean, the meaningful tiebreaker that we have with them is our win against Tennessee and the fact that somehow... They just lost to the Titans.
1: Ryan Tannehill.
2: (laughs) I mean, that's got to be concerning. You just lost, even with Patrick Mahomes back. You know, when you looked at when he was... The offensive side of the ball for the Chiefs, they didn't miss a beat, and I think that speaks to the job. And maybe even, Chris, you think about the Bills fans who scream about how,
3: Oh, if
2: we had Patrick Mahomes! None of this would be happening. They look at our offensive performance like Sunday and say... This would never happen if we had drafted Patrick Mahomes. Well, I'm here to tell you that without Patrick Mahomes, with Matt Moore, Matt Moore playing quarterback, their team didn't miss a beat. They scored 26 and 24 points in each of their games without him. Chris.
1: They don't have a defense either way.
2: That's the problem. When you look at their soft schedule down the stretch, even though it is the most difficult of all the teams jockeying for wildcard spots, I don't see a reason to worry about them, even with the Raiders closing within a game. But the problem is your defense is going to hold you back. Time and time and time again, this defense, Chris, they haven't fixed their problems. You're losing to Ryan Tannehill and the Tennessee Titans.
1: Yeah, you got a problem if you're giving up 35 points to Ryan Tannehill. It's,
2: It's not good for them. And I guess this is the thing. When you look at true tests, yes, they have some difficult games. And I wanted to call them walkthroughs before Sunday. Now, I don't know who it is they're capable of losing to. The the biggest test remaining on their schedule is New England. And the thing is, that game, that game's important when it comes to where they may end up with the Buffalo Bills. I still, though, think that with the coaching and the talent that they have on offense, that's still too much to overcome. And I, I see them as, the AFC West is their division to lose. So then you look around the NFL at the wildcard threats. Chris, the teams that are the biggest threat to the Buffalo Bills making the postseason for just the second time in 17 years. There are emerging threats. The first one, I guess I want to go through this in reverse order of who I think, you know, least important to most important. And the first one, I, the one I think is the least important for Bills fans to worry about is the Oakland Raiders. They sit at five and four. They have the 31st easiest strength of schedule. Their schedule is not, Chris, it's rough.
1: I think I looked at it the other
2: day. It didn't seem that rough. doesn't look that rough. But again, you go to tankathon.com and you look at remaining strength of schedule. And what they do is they adjust it on a weekly basis for wins as of this week. The 31st easiest out of the teams remaining in the playoff line.
1: Well, they do play Cincinnati this week. <laughs> That's true. Cincinnati, the Jets, those are their next two games. And then Denver to close would be their three easiest games that they have. Yes.
2: That's not to say there isn't there, but then I think the other thing that hurts them is, Chris, they only have three AFC wins.
1: That does hurt them.
2: That hurts them. Look, your elite friend, Derek Carr.
1: Very elite.
2: Chris, he's, he's barely in playoff contention. I mean, the fact that they're even included in this crowd seems confusing to me. And it gets even more so when you look at the numbers that they're winning with. They're the only team currently in playoff contention with a negative point differential. Chris, the Raiders are negative 32 in point differential compared to the Patriots, who lead the league at 172, and Baltimore at 111.
0: Chris, by more than 140
2: points! That's how far behind. Oh, they have just one road win all season. And they just played what was the last game in the Coliseum in primetime. They have, a, what, two more home games maybe
1: over can the course of the season? Yeah, probably. I think they play in Mexico City, or they're all done with the London games. I have no idea.
2: And despite the fact that they held Phillip Rivers to just 169 yards this past week, they're still averaging 322 yards per game through the air in the four games since their
1: bye week. Thank God we don't play them. We could fix that easy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean,
2: I guess the thing is, if you look at what they're doing statistically, you have to assume it's not sustainable. You have to. I mean, it's
1: just,
2: it, it, it'll break my brain if a team makes the playoffs with a negative point differential at the end of the season. It doesn't make any sense. And with that said, I, I don't know. <laughs> if, it's pretty simple. I'm just not worried about this team. But, but there again, they're a five-win football team, Crystal. So what the hell do I know? The Tennessee Titans, five and five. They have the third easiest schedule remaining. And they hold meaningful tiebreakers as it pertains to the Bills. First of all, we have the head-to-head win. So we have that working in our favor, and they only have three AFC wins. But they do have that win over Kansas City. That's if Kansas well. City loses New England. And we lost to New England twice.
1: Yeah, too bad we don't play Kansas City.
2: I mean, the crazy thing about the Titans here is that they were almost doomed. Chris, there was talk about Vrabel being fired at the end of this season as they just allowed Marcus Mariota to drive their record into the ground.
1: I would fire someone that has that kind of mustache.
2: (laughs) And in an effort to save his job, Vrabel goes to the much-maligned quarterback, Ryan Tannehill and somehow miraculously changes everything on offense with this team. I mean, if anything, it's got to be a pisser for Jets fans and Dolphins fans. Because now all they can do collectively is scream about how bad Adam Gase is. They're going to be like, look, here's a quarterback who we couldn't get any consistent play out of, and all of a sudden he's winning games week in and week out for this other team. I mean, Chris, that's horrible. He put up 35 points in the team. I mean, I think it's going to be hard for them to win the division title because I don't think their offense is consistent enough. I just don't. But this win against the Chiefs is big for them. They have the ninth best scoring defense and a lot of mediocre offenses in front of them, so they're still a threat to remain in the mix right down to the wire at the end of the season. The Indianapolis Colts. They have the 13th easiest schedule, but they have a... (laughs) They, they, they have some meaningful tiebreakers. I mean, they have four AFC wins. They also have losses to Pittsburgh and Miami, both of whom appear on our schedule. Chris, answer me a question. How does a team beat two amazing quarterbacks like Deshaun Watson and Patrick Mahomes and then lose to the Dolphins?
1: That's an easy answer. You didn't have jo- Jacoby Percet. He didn't have Brissett.
2: <laughs> is it genuinely the only yes, thing, though, Chris? Yes.
1: You allowed
2: 100%. yourself to be outscored
1: by the Dolphins. Yes, because they had Brian Hoyer It starting. sounds like
2: insanity. It sounds like crazy talk.
1: It is. That's the difference of a quarterback.
2: <laughs> well, I guess that's going to be the big story. The health of Brissett and T.Y. Hilton. Both of them now have spent time out of the lineup, and the team hasn't done well without them. And it might end up being the story of their season because – They're clearly capable of some atrocious play when those guys aren't on the field. But then again, Chris, it's entirely possible that they stick around in the mix long enough to make some noise. And if their defense can continue holding high-caliber offenses like Houston's and Kansas City's down, and their running game can get the job done. I mean, Chris, their offensive line last year was the reason they made the playoffs. Mac Wilson's a great running back. Quentin Nelson might be one of the nastiest guards in football. Their offensive line has gotten better over the years. And if you can run the ball and play good defense, you can stick around. You might not win every single week, but you're going to be in the mix. And that's what I think they're going to do as you kind of look at the division race, which absolutely makes them dangerous when it comes to the wild card. And we don't play them, so we have no way of taking that into our own hands. And that leaves us with the final team here, Pittsburgh. The Pittsburgh Steelers at a surprising five and four. I'd almost call it absurd. Because they don't have their quarterback. Where the fuck do these guys get off? Where do they get off, Chris? The Steelers. It's Mason Rudolph. <laughs> I mean, this is a team that when Ben Roethlisberger went down, okay, when Ben Roethlisberger went down early on in the season,
1: you assumed that their year was kind of over, right? Kind of. But you also get to see what Mason Rudolph is made of.
2: Okay. Well, what Mason Rudolph is made of is five wins. Five wins. That's what he's led this team to. There you go.
1: Maybe they found their replacement.
2: Now, they have the 30th ranked schedule in terms of opponent wins as of today. But they hold four AFC wins, which matters. Okay? when. When you look at what they have going for them, though, Chris, this is a team that's just picking up steam. Four straight wins, three of them in the AFC. They're scoring 23.4 points per game on offense, despite the fact that they're starting a backup quarterback. And the thing that I think is lost in a lot of the noise, once again, as a Bills fan, you don't really take note of these things unless you, you really look for them. Their defense might not be the best. They might not be the best against the run or the pass, but they are ridiculously opportunistic. They've forced at least three turnovers in each of their last five games. Chris, that's crazy. I mean, think about Jacksonville when they were in their prime. They weren't always the best defense, but they were the defense that was getting sacks and taking the ball away. And that's what the Steelers' defense is doing which is giving their offense opportunities to stick around in games. Take their success and factor in some easy games in front of them. The fact that they get to play the Bengals. The fact that they get to play the Browns again. They play the Browns again this weekend. I mean, Ben Roethlisberger went on the radio this week and flat out said, I'm jealous of anybody who gets to go play the Browns. We're not. (laughs) Shut your mouth, Ben. You shut your mouth. Oh, Chris, I genuinely believe the Steelers are the most dangerous team in terms of us making the postseason. Because if you have a close division race and somebody drops out, but they have better tiebreakers than us, that's it. We're ass out. All because when you looked at the AFC North five weeks ago, you would have said, okay, well, that's a one team. You know, that's a one playoff team division. Yep. Look at the Steelers go. Look at the Steelers go. Damn Why do they have to... Re- you know, just when I, I want to stop hating that city and that football team, they come right back and remind me why I don't like them. So when I take a look at this, Chris, as of this week, my takeaways as far as where everything stands right now. Like I said, we're setting the table for future conversations. Every week we're going to bring an update to this. Obviously not this in-depth, but I feel like it's necessary to set the table for these kind of conversations. First of all, the Chiefs. The Chiefs are a team to keep an eye on, especially their matchup with the Patriots, because that could very well become a tiebreaker should they manage to beat them. The Patriots were good right up until they played a really dynamic offense. And at the same time, the Chiefs' lack of defensive acumen, that's going to make a lot of games closer than they probably should be on a week-to-week basis. If the Chiefs manage to run away with uh, with their division... It's going to leave teams like Oakland. Because really, Denver's not a threat. The Chargers aren't a threat. It's going to leave teams like Oakland with all of their flaws and things like that jockeying for position with us as a team that might steal a wildcard spot. I'm comfortable with that. What I'm not comfortable with is if they somehow manage to fall into the wildcard, then Chris, we're fucked. We're fucked at that point. I also think... The Bills, despite what's... I think we actually have a harder slate of games than anybody else in the wildcard race. Despite just being... The site ranks us 16th. I don't agree with that, though, when I look at the quality of those opponents, not the wins. I mean, we face some of the highest-scoring teams in the NFL in the next few weeks. In New England and Baltimore. And we have one of the teams that's in the top of the NFL for yardage per game in Dallas.
1: Yeah, and everything that you just talked about, Pittsburgh, they're also in that mix. Yep. Play Pittsburgh before we play New England. I mean, it's it's crazy to me. Those are
2: We have teams loaded with star players and with good coaching. This staff, Chris, we just got done talking about how this team really has to find its... Chris, they're still struggling to figure out the fundamentals of what they want to be as a team. Now you're going to roll into... You know what, you're going to go on the road and you're going to take on some teams that could add quickly. If you don't know who and what you are and you don't have your head on a swivel when you walk through those doors, Chris, this could absolutely get ugly. And so every week we're going to come back here and we're going to check where we, <laughs> where we stand and what our takeaways of the rankings are. I mean, Chris, it's going to take a string of wins here against what we perceive to be subpar competition to keep the Bills from falling out of the postseason conversation altogether and they get their first of two opportunities this weekend. And with that, we start our Week 11 preview, Buffalo Bills against the Miami Dolphins. The time, 1 p.m. Eastern Standard. The place, Hard Rock Stadium, Miami, Florida.
1: If you had to guess, just based on the way we've played, who we're playing, CBS would give us who for the call? Spiro. You got it. Yeah! Spiro Ditas.
0: My boy, Spiro Didis.
1: Spiro Didis and Adam Archuleta on the call on CBS.
2: God, I love I love me some of that. And the line, folks, the line is the Bills are still a six-point favorite. Somehow, someway. I mean, guys, we're talking about the Dolphins here. Jesus tap-dancing Christ. The Dolphins, the team that was tanking for Tua who is a mess on the football field, who has the NFL's worst point differential at negative 149, is somehow 2-0 in the last two weeks. So as we head into what is a must-win football game, which seems crazy because we're only at the midpoint of the season, we bring back one of our favorite guests for this week's preview. Travis Wingfield. Soccer-style kicker. Graduated from Collier High June 1976. Stetson University Honors Graduate Class of 1980. Holds two NCAA
1: Division I records. One for most points in a season. One for distance. Former nickname The Mule. The first and only pro athlete ever to come out of Collier County. And one hell of a model of murder. Locked on Dolphins Podcast.
0: But this is Miami,
3: pal.
2: Hey, Star Wingfield. How are you doing this evening?
3: I'm doing good, fellas. I like the uh, must-win game for you guys. I don't know if you knew this, but the Dolphins' playoff hopes are alive and well, and it is a must-win game for us, baby.
2: <laughs> oh my god! Oh, let, you know what? It's this is a place where I mean I just want to jump right into this conversation with you because I've been looking forward to this for days. The improbable to win Miami Dolphins. I mean, you guys have not yet been mathematically eliminated from the playoffs. It's it's anarchy. It's insanity. You have two AFC wins to your credit. I mean, first of all, your personal opinion. When when you beat the Colts, were you thrilled?
3: No, <laughs> I'm, I mean, it, I would love to go back and listen to the Rockpile report from what was it, October 20th when we played you guys last time. Cause I'm curious to get like the, the opinion I had of the team now compared to what I just said about playoffs. Like it couldn't be more of a juxtaposition, <laughs> but I mean, I, I expect every time they get in these situations where they're they're ahead, like in the Bills game, for instance, they were a, about to go up by two scores at the end of the third quarter, but I just never have faith that they're going to hold on because they've been such a bad second-half team all year long. So even when the Colts got the ball back with Brian Hoyer and, and, you know, no T.Y. Hilton and an offensive line that got beat up by the Dolphins all day long of all teams, like I still had confidence they were going to find a way to score, and they almost did. They got down to the 16-yard line and then went four and out from there. But it's you – know, it's, it's good. I'm, I'm really excited about these close games and the well-coached team that they have right now. The, you know They're doing a good job coaching this team, but I don't want to see wins still. So it was like good, but then like too good, I guess. So last
2: week I tweeted at you <laughs> re- regarding a fan who was reaching out to you directly on Twitter, talking about how the NFL not just should, but absolutely needs to launch an investigation into the Bengals because <laughs> they didn't believe that sitting A.J. Green after he practiced all week, was correct and that it was indicative that there was that they were conspiring to try to be bad and i just felt like that was a massive like pot meat kettle moment
3: (laughs) yeah it it, it totally is you got more go ahead
2: well no i was just gonna ask the state of the fan base at this point now you know if people were getting that manic over well we're a one-win football team and someone's purposely trying to be worse than us what is the pro (laughs) tank crowd feeling in miami right now
3: it, dude, it's the perfect like definition of what a football fan is where you it's it's all about what suits your like, you know, what suits you and what you get what benefits you the best? Because I, it's it's funny for us to sit here and say that, like, oh, no, they can't be tanking because we were tanking. But we were so <laughs> mad. Uh, Dolphins fans were so mad when the NFL was talking about investigating or, you know, whatever they were talked about doing, and then all of a sudden it gets squashed, and then Ryan Fitzpatrick's back in the lineup like, okay, this is our way of saying, yeah, we were tanking, you caught us, but we'll put Fitzpatrick back in the game, and now all of a sudden they're <laughs> playing good football. So – the fan base man it's it's the same as it's always been it's divisive a massive wedge between the two sides whether it's ryan Tannehill, whether it's you know go for tua or try to win games like there's always going to be this divide people are always going to have things to fight about and it's just something else now at this point like do we want tua do we want joe burrow do we just want to say forget all that and try to win the last seven games or whatever like it's crazy man they're they're always going to find something to fight about (laughs)
2: You personally, you mentioned something as we were speaking about the coach. You were saying, I like seeing the coach do well. What, From where we started this season, I think that was a big part for you, was coming into this year to see how your rookie head coach was going to fare. To this point, now that he's all of a sudden taken a zero-win football team that everyone predicted would be the worst, and he's coached them to two improbable wins, how would what's your personal opinion of the job that Brian Flores is doing as a head coach down there?
3: Oh yeah, man, I could go like on a half hour diatribe about this guy right now. I, I'm I'm full bloom with him at this stage because where you look at the other bad teams like the Jets and the Giants and Washington and the Bengals, they're getting worse because their rosters are getting depleted. And that's just how the NFL goes. The war of attrition. Everybody gets worse as the year goes along. For the most part but the thing that we keep pointing back to for the Dolphins is that Brian Flores comes from the Patriots. He brought all these assistant coaches from the Patriots. And what are the Dolphins doing? They're doing what New England does every single year. And they're getting better as the year goes along, despite the fact that Xavier Howard's on IR, that Preston Williams tore his ACL, that Rashad Jones doesn't ever play because he doesn't feel like it, I guess. And they've got all these guys that are injured or missing games and and a bad roster getting even more decimated and he's playing better football. Their point differential increasing every single week as far as how much they lose by and then the games they've been winning, they're winning by more points now too. So it's it's the the job he's done to get these guys playing at a level that's even competitive is just so mind-blowing to me. We talk about the Dolphins secondary right now. Nick Needham, undrafted free agent from UTEP. He was playing at UTEP last year. You've got Ken Crawley got here 10 days ago. He played 41 snaps in the game, didn't allow a catch. Jamal Wiltz was on the Patriots practice squad last year. He's playing a lot of reps. Eric Rose switches to safety (laughs) to play the Minka Fitzpatrick role, and he has a really good four-game stretch going for himself right now. They have all these guys that are moving around the defense that basically probably wouldn't be in the NFL if it wasn't for this Dolphins roster and how depleted it is, and he's getting production out of them. It's absolutely insane. I love it. Well, to underscore
2: that for Bills fans who maybe don't know enough about it statistically as you do, here's what I'm looking at. You guys trade away Mega Fitzpatrick and and then your number one cornerback goes on IR. And to your point, you'd have expected that unit to fold after taking losses of personnel and top end talent like that. And instead, two hundred and three yards per game passing allowed since week six, that's better than the fifth ranked Chargers in terms of pass defense, who have two hundred and five. You haven't allowed more than two touchdowns in a game since you guys played Buffalo. And you have just three passes of more than 25 yards allowed, which is a huge step up from early in the season when with your Minka Fitzpatrick, with your cornerback Xavier Howard, you guys were getting gouged for massive passing touchdowns. I mean, people were getting chunk yardage against your team when usually once they figured out what you were doing schematically, your whole secondary just unraveled. And it, it's kind of what keyed most of your losses. All of a sudden, this whole unit, contrary to what you would believe, is playing better football. And it sounds like it has more to do with just coaching and better utilization of the personnel. I mean, you talk about Eric Rowe moving back to safety. I think that's probably a better fit for him. I mean, Bill's fans, Eric Rowe was a cornerback who came from the Patriots. And he kind of struggled to make that roster, so he came to you guys in free agency. One of the things that you saw with Aaron Williams here for the Buffalo Bills years and years ago, he tried to play cornerback. He was drafted to play cornerback, and he was mediocre. You moved him to safety, though, and he went on to have a bunch of really productive years for this team. It sounds like that's something that Eric Rowe is doing, no? No.
3: Yeah, I agree completely, and I go back over those last several games. I actually have the notes right here. He has allowed seven – or no, if we take this week's game as well, he was, I think, two catches on eight targets for Eric Ebron. So give him 24 targets, nine catches for, like, 91 yards. So he's allowing tight ends to catch under four yards per target when they go after him, and he's also supporting the run game too, getting plenty of run stops in. So having him move to that position has helped a lot, but I think it's mostly just the fine details and the attention to detail – Brian Flores got so much crap in the offseason for the TNT wall. It's a gimmick, right? It's like Tony Sperano and burying the football after a bad game. It's, it's cliche. It's something that I think usually doesn't really work. But they would send players over to this wall that said TNT for takes no talent. Every time you made a mental mistake, you jump off sides. You blow an assignment. And the past two years, we called Matt Burke's defense the I-thought-you-had-him defense because (laughs) they would turn guys loose in their zone coverage and just not pick up anybody and let them go for long touchdowns. And that just hasn't happened since that first game against Baltimore and Lamar Jackson. And what he's doing this year is pretty much an indictment of the rest of the league, not Miami. So they've been way more sound in their assignments. They are lowest penalty yardage and lowest penalties against in the NFL right now. And that kind of stuff matters, man. Like in a league where... The margin of victory is one or two plays. If you win those small details, you're going to win more games than you lose, even if your roster is not good enough.
2: How do you think – now, now I, I see these numbers that they're putting up, and I see the teams that they're putting them up against. You know what I mean? You're not – I mean, you're talking about a third-string quarterback in uh, Brian Hoyer. But he's not – over the course of his career, Brian Hoyer hasn't exactly been a slouch. You know what I mean? Like, he's been a guy who can come in and occasionally pick up a few games – and keep you competitive. So to see the fact that you're, you guys, what, uh, two turnovers? You guys turned it over on offense, but you somehow beat them in turnover differential, which seems like it has not happened for you guys all season. In fact, I think that might be your first out-and-out win in turnover differential, and it was on three interceptions off of Brian Hoyer. That secondary is really rounding into form, and it's what scares me about your defense. I mean, not to say that I'm not afraid of your defensive front, but I'm just not. So with that said, where is this unit still vulnerable? What are some of the things that they aren't doing well at this point?
3: That's actually a great segue because the, the thing that I really pointed to with the Dolphins' defensive growth in the last Buffalo game was the fact that Josh Allen didn't run for 8,000 yards like he did last season against Matt Burke's defense. So that was a big improvement as far as the defense goes. I think that there, there, there really are vulnerabilities at every spot. And I want to go ahead and make a mention to your fan base here so they don't think I'm crazy like some over-the-top homer. Look, if, if they don't get the talent improved massively next year, they're not going to be a good team just because of the coaching. Because you mentioned it, Case Keenum, Josh Allen, Mason Rudolph, Sam Darnold, Brian Hoyer. Those are the five quarterbacks we're talking about with these stats. And so when someone tells me like, oh, we well, only played some bad quarterbacks. Yeah, that's true. But the Dolphins roster is not an NFL roster. So you give them credit for that. But make no mistake, they have to improve across the board pretty much at every unit next year if they want to make a playoff push. That's That's a given. So to go back to your question. You mentioned the front. Th- these guys cannot defend the edge run very well at all. I talk a lot about Vince Beagle, and he has a good sense for kind of blowing up blocks that come across the formation and getting his way into the backfield. But on the other edge, it's Taco Charlton and Charles Harris. They don't do a whole lot that way, and the rotation behind those guys is not very good. And the Dolphins linebackers, they're, everyone's good at certain things. But a couple of the guys just aren't quite matches for what this defense wants to be. They want big, strong, thick dudes that maybe aren't the fastest, but they can change direction and they can go and hold blocks and occupy blocks and beat blocks as well and the Dolphins with Jerome Baker and Vince Beagle, for that matter, and Charles Harris, these guys are kind of undersized, so they can get washed out in the run game. So when you have Devon Godshaw and Christian Wilkins hold hold up double teams at the point of attack, you don't always have the correct guy that will scrape and make a play. So I would say just the run defense in general. I think it's 31st in the NFL right now, and it's been bad even in that stretch of good play recently. So the run defense off the edge, and then just – I mean, if you get some one-on-one matchups in the secondary and get Josh Allen some favorable down on distances where you can play-action and go deep that way, you can attack them still too. <laughs>
2: Did you just <laughs> say go deep? I almost <laughs> spit Ew. beer all over Chris.
1: <laughs> Ew. now
2: What uh, about
3: that big combine arm? We saw that in Indianapolis. That was that was fun to watch. Well, if you're the
1: third, if uh, you're, you're the punish my liver if, for this <laughs> Travis, if you're the thirty-first run defense, guess what? We don't run the ball on the thirtieth run defense. We'll just give Singletary the ball eight times again.
0: <laughs>
1: I just wanted to fire Drew up I, I, I was, was going to say I don't know
2: if you can tell we're it. still a little low uh, we're still a little frustrated yeah. <laughs> as we are anytime the Browns play the Bills but so I think the thing that get I mean obviously the secondary improvement is something that most fans don't see when they look at box scores and that's something that I think can't be understated enough on the flip side of the ball a lot like the defense the offense has all of a sudden found legs Weeks one through six, zero wins, 176 yards per game passing, 14.8 first downs per game, and eight and a half points per game. Weeks seven through 10, you know, really this started before you guys played Buffalo. It was that Redskins game after your bye where everything kind of turned around. Week seven through 10, as I'm looking at these stats, two wins, 216 yards per game passing. first downs per game and 19 and a quarter points per game. You more than doubled your point production from the early part of the season where everyone was just railroading the Miami Dolphins. It's not worlds better. You're still not setting the world on fire, but you're seeing growth from a group that might have had a hard time moving the ball, I think, against most college, you know, if you stand out D1 defenses. That early portion of the season, you guys made it look like you were pushing a rock uphill to try to get points. And now your offense is starting to chug. And I blame this asshole with the beard. (laughs) Fucking Ryan Fitzpatrick. Chris, I can't tell you. I saw a statistic the other day, and it was just an outline of all. Like, I, I start reading this tweet, and it's just a list of quarterback names. It was a list of all of the quarterbacks that have entered and left the NFL since Ryan Fitzpatrick's career started. They were like, oh, all of these guys have come in and left since Ryan Fitzpatrick got his career first career win. there
1: would be E.J. Manuel, Kevin Cobb. To Jake Locker. <laughs>
2: uh, <laughs> Christian Ponder. Uh, like, the, Travis, w- what, Fitzmagic, w- what is happening here? <laughs> Help me put some context I, I would,
3: to be- this. I would love to see how many dolphins are on that list. Probably 20 of them. (laughs) I mean, it's ridiculous. Crazy. It is, uh, with Fitzpatrick, man, I, I think it's kind of a combination of multiple things as far as the offensive jump. Uh, you know, on, de- on the defensive side of the ball, they overturned like 25% of the total roster within the first week of the season. So I think that was a big reason why things were off to such a slow start. But also the schedule was really tough early on. Fitzpatrick actually, this is going to sound crazy, but he actually played well in that Baltimore loss, the 59-10 to 10 loss. He was running for his life all game long. And then the Patriots game happened, had a couple of bad tips that got Knocked into the air and picked off and ran back for touchdowns. And then they go to Josh Rosen against Dallas and LA. And the biggest difference in Rosen and Fitzpatrick is the anticipation and the ability to see the plays open up before they do. Because Rosen has to see it, then he throws it, and that just does not work in this offense. If you go to my All 22, you know, breakdown thread from Wednesday or from Tuesday. I showed you so many so many occurrences where Fitzpatrick throws with anticipation before the guy gets out of his break, and that really creates the separation in the route. Whereas if you throw it late, the guy has a chance to break on it, it goes incomplete or gets picked off, you know, as worst case scenario. So Fitzpatrick knows this offense. And this offense, is it's a lot of fun to watch the way the design plays. They're getting space for guys like Alan Hearns. Guys like Patrick Laird and Clive Walford are getting wide open in the scheme. And Fitzpatrick is getting more and more comfortable within the scheme, which is new to him this year. But it really empowers the quarterback like Tom Brady's had up in New England for so many years. And I think that he's really kind of taking to it. And at this stage of his career, there's nothing he hasn't seen before. He's seen every single blitz, every single coverage, and he just kind of applies that stuff to his big, gigantic brain, which is bigger than his beard, apparently, and it's, it's making it work for him.
2: <laughs> Jesus. Hey, I don't know if you know this, but he went to Harvard. So it makes sense. That he's just, I don't know if you've heard. It might have been mentioned once no, or twice.
3: Hey, hey, wait, hold on, hold on. Ryan Tannehill was a receiver once. <laughs>
2: Did and you Chris, know that? And Chris Hogan, pla- and Chris Hogan played lacrosse. I, I, I've got, we're, we're full of gems that no one's ever heard of before. But here's something most Bills fans probably don't realize, because we're so focused on our own team. Ryan Fitzpatrick, since being named the starter in October, has not had a game where he's thrown less than a 63% completion percentage. That's take Take that for a second. The worst team in football, their quarterback hasn't thrown for less than 63% in terms of completion percentage. That is, to me, that's crazy. Behind an offensive line that's not talented, behind a a group of playmakers that's been depleted with injury. I mean, Preston Williams was becoming a bright spot in what was an awful season for you guys. He's on the, but now I look at this coming into Sunday and I want to kind of shape this conversation. Preston Williams, bright spot in the season, had a great game against Buffalo. He's on the IR. Kenyon Drake and, uh, what's his fi- Mark Walton, two guys who balanced your offense Sup- to the surprise of most Bills fans and the Bills defensive staff. They found a way to balance the offense by continuing to keep us off balance with the running attack. You, know, you guys ran really well between the tackles using Kenyon Drake. You got out in space with Walton. Neither one of those guys are going to be suited up for the Dolphins on Sunday. I mean, D- Drake is now in a Cardinals uniform. Walton's probably off doing whatever got him suspended in the first place. I mean, Dan Marino's <laughs> retired. Uh, you know, Zach Thomas isn't coming back anytime soon.
1: I mean, <laughs> Kareem Abdul-Jabbar Shit. will be running the ball.
2: <laughs> Jason, Jason Taylor. Jason Taylor is nowhere to be found. Who do you believe the offense, there's, there's talent missing from this team that you didn't have the last time that you, you really scared the hell out of everyone here in Buffalo. Who does the offense besides Ryan Fitzpatrick still flow through at this point?
3: Yeah, you mentioned the fact that he's having success behind what is probably the worst offensive line ever to play, in my opinion. It's, it's so bad. Jamarcus Webb, the left tackle, gets beat like 10 times a game. It's it's crazy. I, I can't believe it. And then you talked about Mark Walton getting suspended and, and Preston Williams getting hurt. The number two snap getter at receiver was Alan Hearns on Sunday. The number two tight end was Durham Smythe. The number two running back was Patrick Laird. Have you heard of any of those guys besides no. Alvin? Burns? I mean,
2: exactly. I thought you it's, were making things up. Crazy. I was like, I know, I have a friend yeah. named Laird who lives in Auburn, New York. I, yeah. I thought you <laughs> might be talking about him.
3: Uh, but it's it's Devonte Parker, man, which is crazy because I was the biggest Devonte Parker <laughs> hater. <laughs> you for people so long. hated it, and all all of a sudden he is like a just a picture of consistency. I know you're a big stats guy. Go to his Pro Football Reference game log. The last like six games are the exact same. Eight targets, five catches, 75 yards, and a touchdown, like to a T. Every game he's been so consistent, and he really is doing a lot. And uh, as far as what the, the play design does to get him open, they love putting him to the short side of the field as the X receiver, and it gives him one-on-one chances where they can go basically a three-route conversion that they have a chance to go deep, they can do a back shoulder, and they can run a hitch-slash-curl conversion off of that. And he's been doing that with Fitzpatrick, and they've been on the same page most of the time I don't think it's gotten picked off once yet, so we'll see what the Bills want to do to counter that. Do you put Tredavious White over there? Do you let Levi Wallace get eaten up again by him? That's kind of what you have to choose to do. I'd imagine they go with White, but if you can take Devontae Parker out of the game and probably Mike Gasicki, who kind of started to come on in that Bills game, those are the two guys you have to watch for. They're the big play threats, middle of the field, on the outside, lots of speed to burn to, and they can high point the ball. So Gasicki and Parker, if you take them out, there's literally nobody else.
2: Well, you want to talk about nobody else. This is one thing I, st- I find incredibly interesting. Your team trades away Kenyon Drake in a move that I mean, we we're just talking about how you don't have many running backs at your disposal. And I can't remember for the life of me whether the Walton thing happened after the Kenyon Drake trade. So you'll have to correct me if I'm incorrect about this because I, I think it did. But you traded away a guy who always had untapped potential in terms of being a running back and every down back with the Dolphins. And in his very first game in a Cardinals uniform, he goes for over 100 in a touch. That had to stick in your craw a little bit, right?
3: Well, yeah, I'm just annoyed because I always thought, like you mentioned, that Kenyon Drake was so talented – and I think he'll get the most out of that in Arizona, but there's also some factors behind the scenes with Kenyon Drake that I think a lot of people aren't aware of, and probably they shouldn't be aware of because it's kind of his personality and, and his character traits, because he's had so many coaches now in his career that have just passed over him, and it kind of goes into his work habits and how consistent he can stay because he's he's had those games in Miami now, that the 160 yards from scrimmage and two touchdowns. He's had those games, but then he'll come back the next week, and he'll drop two passes, and he'll fumble the ball, and he'll run for, you know, sideways instead of getting North and South. So it's he's kind of like the Ryan Tannehill of running backs where, yeah, you can you can go ahead and take the cheese and the fool's gold, but he's also gonna turn into a pumpkin at midnight eventually. So it's you know, he wasn't gonna re-sign here in the offseason, so getting any resource for him to me in a tank season was always a plus.
2: Well, and so what I'm intrigued about is what the plan is to do with who's left. Because that means coming into Sunday's matchup, the Buffalo Bills run defense has kind of been our Achilles heel over the last couple weeks starting with that Eagles matchup, where they just ran the ball on us at will. And then we let Adrian Peterson get almost 100 yards in the first half of football. In fact, I think he did. I think he topped 100 yards in a single half. And then this past weekend, we gave up 100 yards to Nick Chubb, which I think has more to do with our interior defensive tackle rotation and the fact that this team misses Harrison Phillips so badly. I mean, think about about this, Travis. Your team is going to go up against a team that has, since they lost Harrison Phillips, they promoted a player from the practice squad who spent time with us earlier in the season. They cut that guy for another guy who they got in the practice squad. Vinny Taylor, a guy that you might remember. You know, a former Dolphin. Loved him. Then they, then, then, they decide he's not good enough, and they go out and they sign Corey Legit, who came from the, uh, from the Chargers and was looking for work. This is a guy off the street that we signed if that doesn't speak to the desperation that this team's feeling at that position, nothing else will. So you'd think that the Dolphins would be licking their chops coming into this matchup about being able to try to run on this Bills defense. But I'm looking at your starting running back, Kalen Balage. Oh, gosh. Jesus tap-dancing Christ. <laughs> you people made him out to be the next guy, the next Don't you Fred ja- me, Ricky Bobby. The, the next Fred Jackson, the next, oh, he's so underrated, but no one really knows what a hidden gem he is. Well, I'll tell you what your hidden gem is getting you. Okay, he got forty-three yards on 20 carries. And if you count in his receptions, that. he averaged like one point nine yards per touch in that game. One point one point nine five on Sunday against the Colts as a running back. He your feature running back. The week before, he wasn't much better. It was like 2.7. okay. And as a team, you haven't had a player rush for more than 50 yards in a single game since the last time we played each other. (laughs) So with that, how do you expect this to work? Or is the rushing attack something that we can just as fans stop worrying about?
3: The best part of the Kalen Balazs thing was that he had an interview with, like, pro. or got picked up by Pro Football Talk where he said, I don't have nothing to prove. And it's like, oh, yeah, okay, man. Like, yeah, you, you've you been the worst running back in the NFL so far, but you've got nothing to prove. And, and like I said, <laughs> don't put that on me because that was guys like Omar Kelly that were driving that narrative home. And even after he had the bad start, they were saying, like, just trust me, he's got the talent. No, he has the lateral agility of a freaking Cadillac, man. Like, he, the next open hole that he sees and, and bursts through is going to be the first one. He just basically... I don't think he really understands blocking schemes and where to go. I think he literally just grabs the football – buries his head and takes his best guess. And that worked in college when you're, you know, a rocked up 220 pounds with a good 4-4 speed. But you have to have a little bit of nuance in the NFL. And he just has none. You go back to his, his work in the passing game, and the reason that he got pretty much put in the doghouse early on behind Kenyon Drake and Mark Walton was because that he couldn't catch a damn ball to save his life. And that was on top of the fact that he couldn't run a damn route to save his life. And so he gets put back to this like eight snaps per game. And now you lose Walton and you lose Drake and great. Now he's going to play 52 snaps again on Sunday. <laughs> so you're going to, you're going to get a heavy workload of him. You're going to get a decent surge well he'll probably, you know, he'll be okay in short yardage, but He won't get anything over five or six yards. He always runs himself into a tackle eventually. And the Dolphins blocking is not very good either. So all of Mark Walton's success in that game against you guys was pretty much much after contact. I think you're going to be pretty safe to shut us down for a solid 40 or 50 rushing yards in this game. We
2: better hope so. Now, your predictions for this game. First of all, team rushing. I want to ask you a few of your predictions. First one, team rushing. How many rushing yards do you think is a team the Dolphins finish with on Sunday?
3: Oh, boy. Let's say they run the ball probably 25 times. I'll give, them, I'll give them like 70.
2: All right. that See, I feel like that's aggressive, considering what I've seen. But there again, maybe that's a bigger indictment of what we've done.
3: When He's I, so bad, dude. He's so bad.
2: When I look at the Dolphins' last few games, okay, I'm just looking over your statistics, and I'm looking at your turnovers. It's been hard for you guys to stay clean on offense. And at the same, I mean, f- you, the Jets game was the first time you guys didn't turn the ball over all season. And that only lasted a week. So with that said, turnovers are something your teams had to overcome. But this is also a Bills defense that had multiple opportunities for turnovers on Sunday and just couldn't find a way to make it happen. You know, it's something that you know, they talked about it in every press conference that Sean McDermott's had. He brings up the fact this team has to have more. How many turnovers do you foresee for the Dolphins' offense?
3: Well, against the Bills defense, who I think is one of the better as far as, you know, you guys have the ball hawks in that secondary and at linebacker as well. I would say that Fitzpatrick's probably good for a couple of turnovers in this game, especially if the score gets a little bit out of hand and they have to become more aggressive. So I'll say you get two from him.
2: And you want to talk about the score getting out of hand. What's your prediction for the final score of Sunday's game?
3: Honestly, I haven't thought about it much, but just considering the matchup and and Buffalo coming to Miami, and I think that Brian Flores, you know, with his Patriots background, tends to do a pretty good job on uh, mobile quarterbacks that do more with their legs and their arm. So I'll say it's a tight one again. I'll go Buffalo 22, Miami 16. You want to talk about putting evil on people? (laughs) What's the spread in this game? It can't be that much, can it?
2: You're lucky I love you, Winfield
3: you guys me. lost to the browns i mean oh my god
2: you're gonna throw that in my face
3: i'm sorry I, I actually hope you guys go to the playoffs i don't even you know it's Listen, the
2: only real losers like the only real losers out of that browns uh bills game was everybody who sat there like me <laughs> in their dark bathrooms thinking, yeah. that, thinking that they were the bad juju like, listen, things are going so bad, I no longer trust my team's fate to themselves. Every time I leave the room, the uh, they, they do something good, so I should just leave. And so you sit in the dark bathroom listening to the game because you're just praying that fate will so <laughs> deliver you a victory because you don't trust your team to
1: do it on their own. Yeah, well, according to the, uh, my Yahoo Sports app, it's Buffalo minus six.
3: Jesus Christ, not again. Don't give yeah, me I this. just lo- I just looked at that. Yeah. Nailed it. I nailed it, man. And so, and, and the dolphins have actually covered the last five spreads. So I might've undersold <sighs> the fins on that one. God, get out of here. <laughs> why don't you tell <laughs> them come down to B- a before, we, we're, before we, before th- we both to be sweating for the opposite reasons,
2: <laughs> before we throw you out of here, where can everybody find your work? Where can then, uh, I, I know you said that you were doing a little bit of collaboration with Joe Marino tonight. Why don't, why don't you tell talk, talk a little bit about that and where they can find most of your work.
3: Oh yeah. Joe's the man. I'm sure you guys know, know all about him. Uh, Locked On Dolphins podcast every single day Monday through Friday. We've got content up on lockedondolphins.com. I do my all 22 uh, video breakdowns, about 20 videos on either side of the ball. You can find that on Twitter at Wingfield NFL. And then yeah, check out Joe with Locked On Bills. He does a lot of great stuff too.
1: All right, go follow Travis Wingfield at Wingfield NFL on Twitter. Always, agree. he's my favorite guest. My favorite guest that we have on <laughs> every every season. We have him on twice. I love it. He brings the knowledge.
2: He gave us his predictions, now I get my turn to give you mine. And along with our keys to victory. Wow, that's a lot of keys. Bigger the keychain, more powerful the man. That's what this is going to come down to on Sunday. You want to talk about being the more powerful man? The first key to victory is to force that offense to remain one dimensional. Do not allow them to replicate their success on the ground that they had against the Bills when they played us here in Orchard Park. okay, It's going to be hard for them, considering how depleted a talent they are. But that's absolutely something you should be able to accomplish when you're going up against a running back who just averaged 1.9 yards per touch. This shouldn't be rocket science. This should be the cure for what ails the Bills' run defense, because the interior of that offensive line is not strong. And if you wanted to get Corey legit reps to get him up to speed, this is a game you do it. You throw him out there early and often. In fact, if anything, you save uh, Phillips. You save Phillips for when you need his pass rush abilities. You let Corey Legit get acclimated with with the scheme. You let him get reps early because this shouldn't be a rushing attack that can blow your doors off. You do that, you're gonna take you're you're taking a massive step towards winning this football game. My second key: don't let the Fitz revenge factor come into play. This guy, for whatever reason, just loves to play the Buffalo Bills tough, Chris, how many times has he beaten us since we cut him? I don't know. I feel like we've only beaten him once, which was the last
1: time we played him.
2: then it would be twice. It would be the the Jets game at the end of that ten and six season where we kept him out of the playoffs. love that and it was last week or two 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 or three weeks ago
1: yeah two i weeks. don't I can't remember all the teams that he's fucking played for.
2: But whenever he plays us, he plays us tough. That's Ryan Fitzpatrick. That's who he is. Do not allow whatever bad juju is associated with us cutting him the way that we did after hiring a head coach who thought that was going to be a starter and then drafting his replacement and unceremoniously dumping him. Do not allow Ryan Fitzpatrick to stay hot because he's been sharp the last few weeks, and it's what's powered their two wins. And the third key to victory is to impose your will in the running game. You just heard Travis Wingfield tell us about how their front seven has struggled. They're just not talented enough to contain truly dynamic attacks or teams that really do just lean on them and execute when running off the edges towards their D-tackles. Chris, who does that bring to mind? A player who could attack the edges of a defense.
1: Probably Devin Singletary. I
2: don't know the guy that everyone seems to have forgotten about in that offensive in that offensive room. I'll tell you what you can call it my off- my key to the game three B. Leave Brian Dayball at home. Don't let him get on the plane. If that's what's going to keep Devin Singletary from being one of the keys to this game, then I don't want him allowed on the jet. All right, point blanking period. Chris, your prediction
1: for the final score. God, if we're gonna play like we did against the Browns, and if the Dolphins are gonna kinda of play the way they've been playing, it seems like it's like an eleven to five score. But I don't think I can get there. Ah! I think I think we'll win and I think it'll be close. I'm gonna I think we win seventeen to ten.
2: Seventeen ten? I like that, but I I like 17-13. You want to know why? Because Ryan Fitzpatrick's getting 200 yards and change per game. That's going to put them in line for at least a few field goals. Yes, our pass defense has been good, but not when you can pick on Levi Wallace the way that he's shown he's prone to allow. Now, maybe the defensive coordinator corrects his approach.
1: Maybe Maybe, you get Kevin Johnson instead of Levi Wallace. No, but maybe
2: you see a little bit more zone coverage. Maybe you see them letting Wallace play to his strengths rather than trying to play man defense, where he just got torched this past weekend. But if that doesn't happen, you're going to see a closer game than you're comfortable with. I foresee a 17-13 Buffalo Bills win, and if it doesn't happen...
1: Ooh. We're gonna have a rager <laughs> oh at the podium. God,
2: this is gonna be it'll be anarchy. Fire in the streets, the mob goes wild. Song by Clutch. Go check it out. Guys, we gotta get the fuck out of here. Thank you so much for showing up for another ridiculously long podcast. I'm Drew Gear, that's Chris Krueger, and this has been the Rock Power Report.
0: I know I'm without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop.